You are listening to the Build Your Network podcast. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Figuring It Out. Today, we have an awesome health expert on the show, Max Lugavir. Back on. Max, what's going on, bro? Thanks so much for, uh, for joining us today. Travis, what up, brother? It's good to be here. And uh, it's an honor. I'm, I'm sad that I couldn't join you in person, but... One of these days, dude. One of these days. <laughs> so there'll be, there'll be plenty of time. We'll, we'll knock it out at some point. So, man, I, when your book was coming out, obviously, I had you on for, I think it was The Genius Life, your first book. I don't think it was the second book. I, I could be wrong on that. But a couple of years ago, and we had a great conversation. And I was stoked to see that you're coming out with another book so we could have an excuse to have another conversation. And so uh, I'm figuring out, we've talked a lot about like philosophy, religion, and just kind of like how to live a good life with our personal finance and things. But we haven't had that many health experts on the show. And it's not like because we don't want that. It's just that there's so many experts, quote unquote, out there that preach a certain narrative. Mm. And if you don't fit in that narrative, then you're like labeled as unhealthy. And they frankly just tire me out watching them because I just can't like they they preach this like gospel of you know, subscribe to this thing, never cheat, only do this. And if you ever do something different, you're just going to be fat the rest of your life. And uh, so when I follow your stuff on Instagram and your podcast and some of the other stuff that you put out, it's stuff that actually makes sense to me. And it's not completely restrictive and boring and horrible. And you actually get to eat food that you like and stuff like that. So I want to kick this off by just kind of allowing you to talk about what are a couple of like the common myths that are in uh, proliferated by uh, nutrition fitness gurus all the time that that you think are just kind of utter nonsense. Yeah, that's I mean that's a great place to start. And I guess just piggybacking off of what you alluded to, I think one of the biggest myths is that there exists a one size fits all diet. There just there simply doesn't. There doesn't exist a one size fits all diet. There doesn't exist a one size fits all supplement regimen. I mean nutrition isn't like a hat, right? Like we can have one size fits all hats, that's fine. That, that'll work for the majority of the population. But everybody's different at the end of the day. We have different fitness levels. We have different ages. We have different ancestral backgrounds, genes, obviously. And so for me, I think it's really important to empower people with the knowledge so that they can then begin to iterate in their own lives, to embrace trial and error, which is so important when it comes to figuring out what works for you. I, you know, it's been a couple of years of trial and error for me to figure out what works for me. And I think that I'm, I'm on the right path. But, but ultimately, what works for me might not necessarily work for you. I might handle, for example, raw vegetables really well and I might enjoy them at times. Whereas for you, that might, they might wreck your stomach. I love alliums like garlic and leeks and shallots and things like that. But I have a, a friend who, if he, if he's even in the same room as an allium, he basically can't leave his house for 24 hours. So yeah, so people, so people are, are different. I mean, that goes without saying, but I think one of the problems that we see in the online wellness community is that there's this idea that a one-size-fits-all diet is the way forward. And I, I don't think that's the case. Sometimes you'll see a lot of wellness gurus embrace a diet that's worked for them, and they become evangelists for their diet. Sure. I think that's actually quite common in nutrition, 
because food is one of those things that we all feel very sort of strongly about, right? Our, our, our diets tend to, we tend to integrate our diets into our identity. It's this weird thing. Sometimes you go to people's profile bios, you know, on Instagram and you'll see vegan or carnivore or gluten-free or plant bit, whatever, you know, what have you. And, uh, it's just very odd. Like why, why should the way that you eat be ingrained in your, in your identity to such a strong degree, right? Like you're planting a flag, a flag essentially in your dietary pattern. And what works for you today might not work for you tomorrow or a year from now or a decade mm. from now. So that's, I think, I don't know, a good place to start, but I hope that I've never really perpetuated that notion of a one size fits all diet. Uh, let's, let's talk about, since you brought it up, let's talk a little bit about the vegan perspective, maybe pros and cons of being on purely vegetable only diet. <laughs> Just like going for it, huh? <laughs> Let's do it, man. I know you got some. I know you got some strong feelings about this. So. Controversy off the bat. <laughs> Here's the deal. I think that the the best uh, reason to embrace a, a vegan plant based diet is that you don't like meat. I think that's that's a very sound rationale to embrace yeah. a plant exclusive diet, right? From a health standpoint, I don't think it's optimal. From an ethics standpoint, I think it's a little bit. It gets a little bit murky. And, uh, and from an environmental standpoint too, I think it's, it's a little bit, uh, less cut and dry, less straightforward than it's often portrayed to be. And the reasons for that is that if you shop in the modern supermarket and you partake in, uh, in sort of the modern world and you support plant, ind industrial plant agriculture, unfortunately, there's just as much blood on your hands today as there is for an omnivore. We know that the widespread tilling and monocropping of land, harms innumerable animals, whether it's the decapitation of field rodents, squirrels, mice, things like that, the spraying of plants that then harms birds or the runoff, um, which can potentially harm fish. There was a, a, a research paper that estimated it's impossible to know the true cost of life that plant agriculture nets out, but it estimated that about 7 billion animal lives are lost every year due to plant, plant oh. agriculture alone, which is on par with what you know, the cost of life involved in animal agriculture. So to me, the, it, it reduces the net um, suffering, the area under the curve for suffering to just be an ethical omnivore. Mm -hmm. We have a, a system in this country that is at times very inefficient, that is not friendly to the environment, that can be incredibly cruel to animals. But it's my perspective that we don't change the system by opting out entirely. We change the system by using our money, by voting with our dollars for the system that we want to see, that we want yeah. to usher in. And I think I think there's being strides made from even the people that stand to make a profit from shifting from, from shifting to these more like cruelty-free uh, environments. Like we literally just invested into a poultry company that's that's raising uh, free-range chickens and uh, in a really humane way that it, and the quality of the the meat will be better. And they've been growing them for ten years and stuff like that. And I think a lot of people are kind of seeing that not only is that like the right thing to do and the fair thing to do and the non-cruel thing to do, but it's also going to be better for their profits anyway, because that's what people want now is a move toward that more kind of ethical behavior on a global scale. I think so. And I, from a, from a health standpoint, I think it's, it's beginning to dawn on people that, uh, you know, these ultra processed, right. Right. Meat, meat replacement products are just as, nutritionally bereft as 
um, any of the ultra processed products that line supermarket shelves, right? Mm. Um, we can look at the stock of a company like Beyond, right? I have nothing personally against them, but there was this fervor about the stock and it's, it's now a third of what it was at its peak. So, yeah, I mean, I think, again, if, if it's your choice to eat however you want, but it's, it's certainly evolutionary, evolutionarily inconsistent when you shun a broad and, uh, as nutrient a dense category as animal products are. Um, there's really no good, uh, science to, to warrant excluding animal products from one's diet. And so for me, an opti a, hu a biologically appropriate optimized human diet involves both animal protein as well as whole plants. So yeah. I actually, I actually think that I take a very balanced approach. I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't endorse or, or promote any of these sort of fad fringe diets. My, the diet that I promote isn't, uh, you know, I don't feel very extreme. Um, although I guess some in the nutritional and med medical orthodoxy might call my, my recommendations extreme because I tend to eschew grain products, but, uh, but yeah, I think you need both. I think you need I think you need animal protein, and I think you need plants. Uh, how do we start to keep dominating this conversation? That's okay, I'll, uh, I'll cut it in a second. <laughs> um, how do you know if you're buying the right meat? Where do you, where do, like where do you find like everybody claims all these things nowadays, and uh, you know all these companies are smart. They make money, they have profits, they have shareholders, and they poured lots of money into marketing dollars to put things like non-GMO or vegan or cruelty-free or like, how do we actually know that what we're buying is good quality? That's a great question. There's a lot of marketing claims on products. There's only about 12 crops in this country that are GMO and not all of them are even commonly consumed. So GMO is a big, you know, the non-GMO project. It's a big, it's a big marketing play. I certainly buy organic when given the choice and particularly when i'm consuming plants that are that that i eat the whole skin or the peel uh but there's a lot of marketing with organic too not every product that has an organic logo slapped on it is is good for you with regard to meat i think i like humane certification it's impossible to know everything it's not like i've vetted you know of course yeah to yeah. to the degree that i can say with certainty that every meat product that has that certification slapped on it is going to be you know um what what is promised but in general, I like to buy meat that that is pasture raised, um, free range. If if we're talking about poultry, beef, grass fed, grass finished. The grass finished aspect of it is is super important. But I also, you know, I'm not. I I try not to be dogmatic, and I like to remind people that as much as I have disdain for the factory farm system, even conventionally raised beef is going to be a better option for dinner, a more nutrient dense option for dinner for most people than boxed mac and cheese. So yeah, right. <laughs> that's a distinction that I make in, in my new book, Genius Kitchen. And that is that in a perfect world, we, we would all be able to afford and access grass-fed, grass-finished beef. And, um, and I certainly, I feel very lucky that I, I live in Los Angeles. I have access to great supermarkets. I you know, have, have reached a level of financial independence where I can go and I can buy you know, those, those sort of top-tier products, right? But for people that, that don't live in LA, for people that may live in food deserts, it's still really important to, to acknowledge that animal products are, no matter how they're raised, pristine sources of the highest biological value protein that exists in nature, rich in myriad micronutrients, and, and especially micronutrients that tend to be under-consumed today, like zinc, vitamin B12. And so, yeah, I think it, best case scenario, we're all able to afford the most pristine, organic, grass-fed, grass-finished, shaman-blessed animal products that that exist. But 
that's simply not going to be a reality for everybody. And so I like to yes. sort of make that, uh, you know, bring, bring that nuance to the table. So rewind the clock a little bit now that we've kind of established a couple controversial opinions here. Uh, let's go maybe back and establish a little bit of prior context. So where people listening can go, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. So, uh, let's rewind the clock, uh, take it back pre book one talk to what, like who was Max Lugavere then? How did you end up jumping into this world of nutrition and gaining a real passion for, uh, learning more about it and putting information out into the world? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm just, I've always been a big nutrition nerd for as long as I can remember. When I was in mid high school, I became interested in, uh, fitness via bodybuilding. I just, I became fascinated by it. Not that I ever wanted to be a bodybuilder or compete, but I thought it was just fascinating the degree to which people were able to transform their physiques into such impressive ways. I mean, I hadn't heard the term biohacker back then. I don't think the term existed, but they're bodybuilders really are the ultimate biohackers. And so the whole, the, the fact that it's this sort of physical sport combined with aesthetics combined with science to me was something that was just like really fascinating. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I was sort of a shy introverted kid with braces and bad hair at the time. And, uh, and, uh, and I thought it was like, I thought it was the coolest thing that I could go to the gym and I could do certain things and I could see the sort of feedback in my own body and in my own confidence. And so I became really interested in nutrition and I started college on a pre-med track desiring to go to medical school, but without a real focus. And then halfway through college, I, uh, realized also that I, I had a love for storytelling and creativity and the way that my brain works, it's very binary. I'm either obsessively interested in a topic or I can't sit still and focus on it for a minute. Yeah. And so what that does is that leads to a really shitty GPA. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I excelled and I got A's in my science classes like chemistry and biology, but then the classes that my peers would take to get the easy A's, I would get D's in because I just couldn't focus on them. Like I just wasn't interested, you know? So I realized that I probably wasn't going to be all that competitive with med school applications. And, um, and I pivoted to a double, ma double major in film and psychology. And that led to me becoming a journalist on TV in the United States for about six years, which I did. I was in 100 million homes as a, as a producer, presenter, journalist for this TV network called Current TV, which existed between 2005 and 2011. And I did that uh, learning really how to investigate delicate topics, topics that, that require nuance in terms of their understanding and, and ultimately their communication to a mass audience. And, uh, that's sort of where I cut my teeth and I did that for six years and then I left that job. And it was then in my personal life that my mother, who's the most important person in my life, right? Started to show the earliest symptoms of memory loss and cognitive decline. And ultimately it was at the Cleveland clinic in Ohio in about 2011 where she was diagnosed for the first time with a neurodegenerative disease. She was prescribed drugs for both Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease at the same time. Mm. It, was, it was unclear what exactly she had, but mm. nonetheless, she was prescribed drugs to, to help um, improve her memory and improve the physical um, movement symptoms that she was exhibiting. And what I learned is that those drugs, when it comes to dementia, drugs are mere biochemical band-aids. And they are minimally effective, if effective at all. And certainly they have no disease modifying ability. And so as a lay person at the time, I, I, you know, it was like a, a light bulb sort of turning point in my life where I became unable to, I mean, I, I kind of ex expressed how my brain works, right? Like I became obsessed with trying to understand why this happened to my mom at the age at which it did. 
if there was anything out there that could be done to help her from the standpoint of diet and lifestyle, because I had already had this passion for that um, in my back pocket. And in tandem with that, with those with those sort of angles, like what could be done to prevent this from ever happening to myself? Because I realized at that point that I had a, a risk factor, right? Like a family member with this with this yeah. sort of condition. And so that began a research journey about a decade ago. And I, I just what I did was I just I dove into anything that I could get my hands on. I mean, it started with books and TED Talks. And ultimately, I was drawn into the what's called the primary literature. So the medical literature to really get a firsthand take on what the science was saying about the etiology of these kinds of conditions, as well as any, any therapeutic options that might exist from the standpoint of holistic health. And I started you know, reading meta-analyses and randomized control trials and observational studies and, and looking at various risk factors, both modifiable and non-modifiable. And it started to dawn on me that this was a topic that we needed to talk about uh, as millennials, because this is a condition, dementia is a condition that often begins in the brain decades before the first symptom of memory loss. And that shouldn't come as a surprise. It's not like, you know, when you have a heart attack, what the, the, the conditions that led to that cardiovascular event developed overnight, right? Right. Same with cancer. So to me, it showed me that we all have this incredible and incredibly long window of opportunity with which we can arm ourselves with knowledge, with information that we can then use to sort of turn the ship in a different direction. Mm -hmm. If it's in our, if it's in our genes, if it's in our family history. And so, yeah, so that's what led to the, the writing of my first book, Genius Foods. And I guess the rest is history, as I say. <laughs> I'd love to ask a couple questions about kind of parenting in a sense. I know you're not a parent, but I actually, I was thinking about actually this morning when I was making my son breakfast. I remember in your book, you had talked about, I think it was your, your mom made you like eggs every, or wouldn't make you eggs or something for breakfast that she wouldn't do. And she was doing it for a certain reason, but then come to find out it wasn't. So just kind of any parenting advice in that sense that we're always trying to instill good habits in our kids. Our kids right now are only almost three and then 16 months. So very young. We're already trying to, you know, keep sugar away from them in some sense. So just what would be some of your best practice in advice for people um, who have young kids and starting them young on that health journey? Just any information you have on that would be awesome. Oh my God. I love this question. <laughs> I think... Um, so, I mean, there are a few things that I know from reading, like from like the, the research, right? But there are also a few things that I've been able to glean from just looking back at how my mother raised me and, and the fact that I'm so interested in health, right? Mm -hmm. I think that I think the most important thing is being a good model for your for your children. I think it's, it. it's <laughs> <laughs> so but I could just it's, make them good with it and I give you whatever I want. It's very important. My mom was actually quite health conscious. I mean, she was led, I think, in many ways astray by the sort of mainstream medical quote unquote wisdom of the time. Sure. You know, my mom was afraid of saturated fat. She was afraid of dietary cholesterol. She we ate, we ate, I grew up eating margarine and, and we had corn oil by the stove and my house was, the, the snack cabinets were always packed with refined grain products, whether or not they had the red heart healthy logo on them. Um, but my mom, what I, what I was able to glean from my mom was that health mattered, was that it was something that was that, uh, it was a value that was important to her. Mm -hmm. She also engaged me and my little brothers in the cooking process quite often. Oh, okay. um, and that was super fun that she involved me and, and, and my brothers um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I grew up to appreciate cooking, the, yeah. the, the art and science of cooking. Studies show actually that modeling a positive affect while eating healthful foods. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of people, sometimes adults um, in particular, will 
eat healthy foods because maybe their doctor told put them on a certain diet or their, a dietitian put them on a certain diet and but and they'll eat it sort of grudgingly and they'll wince while eating foods like broccoli and and the like but a study actually came out <laughs> that found that when children watched their parent it was a it was a, a crossover trial that found that when children watched adults eating raw broccoli with a smile on their face that they were at least twice as likely to eat it and they ended up eating more of it and they themselves had a more positive experience eating it even though it was broccoli right the, bro oh, the sure. broccoli didn't change and but that was completely inversed when they watched uh, adults eating the broccoli and wincing while they were doing it so oh. It all comes back to modeling and being a good example, setting a good example for your kids. I think that's like the best thing to do. If you have a garden, garden with your kids, engage them, engage them in, in, yeah. in cooking and in, in preparing the food and procuring the food, shopping with your kids, yeah. pushing the, the, the shopping cart around the supermarket. Yeah. Use that as an opportunity to educate your kids. Yeah. I think all really great. Um, are there any foods at that age that you would have that you would like have them avoid? Because I know we we were just reading a study. He was reading a study recently about how even gluten at young ages is really like harsh on younger bodies and stuff like that. So, are there any foods that you would say avoid? You know, during those first five years of life, I would say. Well, first of all, I'm I'm not a parent, so I should I should <laughs> disclose make that disclosure, right? But you know, I think that it's tricky to set like. I would assume that would be very tricky to set restrictions. Um, and, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise doing that because your kids are going to end up eating this stuff like when they're not around you anyway. Right. Yeah. Again, I think it goes back to just like positive modeling, right? They're going to do, ultimately they're going to do what you do. If you, if they see that you respect your body and you make certain decisions with regard to what you ingest, then they're ultimately, I think, destined to, to model that behavior. If you impose restrictions on them, not only are you fighting a losing battle, but they're going to end up rebelling. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't have kids, but when I do have kids, you know, I don't, I don't really, I mean, junk food is not something that I, that I like to keep in my house, but, yeah. but, uh, also it's not going to be like a restricted thing that they can never touch or exactly. smell or taste. Yeah, yeah. It, exactly. And, and mm -hmm. also, you know, there are, thankfully now we live in a time, things have changed a lot over the past decade, right? Where you do have quote unquote junk foods, but maybe there's, they're better. They're like better for you junk foods yeah. as yeah. compared to kind of the stuff that we grew up with. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about the new book now. Why now? And like, what are the main things that, that you want people to take away from it? And then after that, I, I want to really kind of get your pick your brain on where people can find the resources that you keep referencing. But I, I wanted to say that so I don't forget to ask it. But, mm -hmm. but first, let's talk about Genius Kitchen. Is there a specific place you want people to buy it? Um, or just like kind of in bookstores or wherever you buy your books? And then what are the top, you know, two or three things that you want people to take away from that book? Yeah. I mean, ideally, you pick up Genius Kitchen in a in an indie local bookstore. Like that's always the best. But sometimes local bookstores, indie bookstores don't don't won't carry Genius Kitchen for whatever reason. So I put together a website. It's geniuskitchenbook.com. So if you go there, you'll see links to all the different stores, whether it's Amazon or Barnes & Noble, what have you. Uh, but all, all major retailers, major retailers should should carry Genius Kitchen. I knew that I was going to write a cookbook as the third part of my Genius Trilogy. And this was... This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, but now, I mean, people are, are have gotten used to, I think, cooking at home a little bit more. And so I think the timing for a book like this is is perfect, right? But we know that just cooking at home more is one of the most powerful leverage points above and beyond arguments about macros or low carb this, low fat that, vegan carnivore. Cook Just cooking at home, eating out less often, it's an, an amazing point of leverage for better health. We know that people who eat home more and cook their own meals as opposed to eating out in restaurants tend to have uh, lower BMIs, so healthier BMIs actually, um, so less risk, lower risk for obesity, healthier body fat percentages, improved family dynamics, right? Because when you're cooking with your loved ones, when you're serving your loved ones, it's just, it, it leads to a, a really um, wonderful sort of family dynamic. We know that eating at home more is associated with better cardiometabolic health. So there are all these like reasons to cook at home more, right? But I felt like there was a, there was sort of a, a gap in the market in terms of cookbooks that were both, that, that provided both uh, a, an important resource for wellness and cooking and nutrition that was evidence-based and sort of had all of the research that I've gleaned over, over the past 10 or so years with delicious recipes. So I, my desire was to create a cookbook that wasn't just a recipe book, but sort of like a, a kitchen resource that would pass the test of time. Mm, awesome. Yeah, got it. So geniuskitchenbook.com. If you're listening to this, we always say on every show that I do, don't ever wait to pick up the books that we recommend because you're definitely going to forget. So whatever you're doing right now, unless you're driving, drop it, go to uh, geniuskitchenbook.com, pick up a copy of it and uh, have this be a centerpiece in your kitchen. I'm sure that you will definitely enjoy it. I know we're going to pick it up and, and try a few of the recipes in there. Okay. So the research question. Yeah. A few different times in the conversation, you've mentioned, you know, I was looking at the research or there was a study that was done or I was looking at this, you know, paper or something like that. Uh, beyond just books that you might find next to Genius Kitchen in your local bookstore, 
What are some resources that you highly recommend people look at if they're really trying to take a deep dive into figuring out more things about nutrition? Yeah. So I, I really do think that people should acquaint themselves with PubMed and how to look up research. Not everybody's going to be able to understand the jargon, right? The medical jargon in, in research literature, but, um, but it's a good starting place. And, and you could learn a lot reading the introductions and the discussions, for example, in research papers. Um, not every research paper paper is open access, but many are. And yeah, just getting getting acquainted with research and science. I think that's super important. We and we've I think we lack as a population scientific literacy. That's yeah. a big problem that we that we expect that that we sort of have this misconception that science is owned by people with with PhDs after their names, or that you have to have some fancy academic background to understand science. Science is a, it's a method of, of, of asking questions and investigating and finding answers. Yeah. And so the more people can sort of understand how it works, I think the better. When it comes to research, you, you obviously want to look for the most up-to-date stuff. Like, you know, every year meta-analyses are published about various topics. Um, so you want to make sure that you're looking at the most, at the, at the most recent research. It's good to know the difference between randomized control trials, for example, and observational studies. It's good to know, you know, I don't know, the, the impact factor of journals that, you, that you're digging up, for example, like a journal like Nature is sort of like it's the getting published in Nature is sort of like winning an Oscar in the world of science. Mm. So very sort of um, prestigious medical journal. It's good to know that small population sizes uh, usually, you know, don't yield the most reliable results unless the effect size is very large. And that's how you're able to achieve statistical significance. So these are all kind of things that like you can pick up. You don't have to, I mean, you know, you're not going to be a PhD. You're not going to become an expert in a given topic necessarily by doing this. But I think scientific literacy is something that we can all improve on. I'm continually improving, right? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always getting better at reading uh, scientific papers. It can take, it can take a whole day to read uh, comprehensively a scientific paper. So there's that, there's PubMed. The other type of resource that I would recommend would be websites like Science Daily or Medical Express. These are um, websites, they tend to cross-post the same content. They're the press releases put out by universities. So when a scientific paper is published, usually researchers and universities that are funding the research want to get press about it, right? So they put out these press releases, and it's those press releases that journalists will then use to write about the research. So you can sort of cut out the middleman by going and looking for these press releases, which often get published to websites like Science Daily, Medical Express. And one tip that I have for listeners, you can read the, the press release first, and that's a great place to go to look to find like the latest research. You know, I, I usually will go and I'll scan them every day to see what's, what's being published. So read those and then go and read the scientific papers and read the English version of, of what those scientific papers are, are saying and then go read the scientific paper and it'll help you better understand science research. Yeah. Awesome. I, I know we've been kind of jumping all over the place. Uh, this is like <laughs> totally the opposite of how I usually do interviews. Usually like stay on a timeline. Everything's continuous, but we're kind of, we're kind of jumping all over right here, but it's all been awesome. So I, I, I have this question. Frankly, it's just a selfish question. And I want to hear your answer to it. Uh, for anybody that's listening, and if you can't tell, I'm talking about myself. Uh, for anybody that's listening who maybe at some point has been frustrated with maybe lack of progress uh, with you know fitness goals, nutrition goals, and things like that. And sometimes, like for me specifically, I'll, I feel like I'm doing the right things. I feel like I'm eating the right things. 
And, and then like, you don't see, you don't see it reflected in the scale or your body fat percentage. And I guess the question is more like, how would you go about self-diagnosing a nutritional plan that could maybe make a difference for you, uh, you know, without spending thousands of dollars in blood work and tests and stuff like that? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think it's always good to take sort of an inventory and audit areas of your life that you might be able to improve. You know, sleep is one of those areas that I think is an afterthought for many people when in fact, it's it's one of the most crucial variables to get under control. Sleeping well, it lifts all the boats in your harbor, so to speak. It allows you to make to adhere to dietary your, your plan from a dietary standpoint much more easily. It, you know, your performance in the gym will be better when you're well slept. It will reduce stress and things like that. So, you know, audit, looking at your sleep can be can be useful. Journaling, taking a, a journal of your diet, like a full day journal, can sometimes be helpful for people. Especially for I don't I don't advocate for calorie counting or macro counting or anything like that. But um, that's not to say that there's no utility in doing that. Um, it can be very useful if you've never audited your diet to see just how many calories you're consuming. If if weight is actually an, an issue for you how much protein you're consuming, how many fat and ca- and carbohydrate grams you're consuming, where your added sugar is coming from. I mean, the average American today is consuming 77 grams of added sugar per day. That's 20 teaspoons. And one of the biggest... That's it's, crazy. Yeah. I mean, the problem with added sugar is that it's insidious, right? It's just everywhere. It's in sauces. It's in commercial bread products. It's in our coffee drinks. It's, I mean, sugar-sweetened beverages are a massive problem. So... Yeah, I think like looking looking to all the different areas of your life and, and doing a, a bit of an audit and also to express gratitude for wins in your life that may be not necessarily reflected in the scale, right? Non-scale wins, they're, they're called. And I think that we don't sometimes give ourselves enough credit for those. Like maybe you're improving your relationship with food. Maybe you are getting more consistent with your workouts. Maybe you are sleeping better. Maybe your stress is, is going down. Like these are all things that are crucially important, right? Like to have a good, healthy relationship with food. That's one of the reasons why I, another one of the reasons why I wrote Genius Kitchen, because I feel like in the health world, so many people end up with like this weird relationship with food, borderline orthorexia. Yeah. And yeah. you can have a, a completely healthy relationship with food while still being mindful of the things that you're putting in your face. And so, yeah. um, so I, I, you know, those are all the sort of, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I hope that helps. I, no, I, very, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Th- th- those are definitely a couple of things that helped me. And then I also uh, have a, a naturopathic doctor friend who does these like five panels. And so I did, you know, paid a bunch of money to get him to examine all the blood work and stuff like that. And, uh, Basically, Travis is allergic to everything. I didn't like the results. <laughs> yeah, it, was it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a great news. Like it was not a like great report card. But I did find out some things, and I and I feel like it has helped me feel better, feel more energetic, and allow me to lose weight a little bit easier, and, as well as gain muscle a little bit better. Like even just like where like my whey was off the charts for 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 whey protein, and so like that was the protein I was having every day, like twice a day, and turns out I was like extremely sensitive to it. And so just by cutting out that one thing and having vegan protein has just been really a helpful practice by itself. And then that obviously, you know, way moved into all the other dairy products and was like, all right, I should probably cut back on cheese. I should probably not drink milk as often. Like, so it, it was helpful to see a bunch of those types of things too. And, and it was helpful to gain an understanding that just because a food like might be in common knowledge, good, right? Like does not mean that it's going to be good for you, uh, which was a very interesting discovery. 
Yeah, I don't know how sold I am on those food sensitivity tests, just to, to be totally honest. I think that sometimes they can, what they can show is that you've got a bit of leaky gut. That now, was if definitely if, a big thing, yeah. Yeah, so if you, I mean, if you have a, an overt allergy to something, I mean, you would know, right? And if you're lactose intolerant, also you would probably know. But sometimes if you have what's called intestinal permeability, which is the, I mean, the, the, the medical way of saying leaky gut, um, you'll see, you'll see red flags with different food products that, you know, some, some providers might say, oh, you're, you're sensitive to these foods, but actually these foods are, what they're doing is they're getting into circulation somehow. The prote proteins or the peptides from these foods are getting into circulation and you're having an immune response to them, which makes total sense, right? Cause you shouldn't have these undigested food particles in circulation that once you heal up the gut and you start to rebuild your gut mucosa, for example, you'll see those sensitivities go away. So and, and with, with, with vegan protein, you know, I would be, especially if I was consuming that every single day, I, I would be concerned about exposure to heavy metals, which sometimes those, those products can harbor. Mm -hmm. So if you are buying a vegan pro protein, I would, I would look and I have no, you know, affiliation with any vegan protein manufacturer, but I'm sure there are some out there that make their certificate of analysis available where they, you know, at least show the levels of, of heavy metals because some of the some of these products on the market can be can be quite contaminated mm. so your recommendation would be like first fix the leaky gut issue and then yeah. maybe see if some of those things are still testing on that yeah because they probably will go away if you yeah. can fix the leaky gut yeah and maybe the play is for now getting rid of the gluten gluten is a big instigator for people getting rid of you know foods that are driving you know a certain symptomology but you may, you know, you may, once you heal your gut, be able to bring those foods back in at some point. So how would you recommend going about doing that? Is that something that is like a, a typical regimen that you can get on supplements you can take or a type of diet that you should have? Or like what, when you say like repair or leaky gut, what does that mean? How can you do it? Yeah. I mean, this is sort of where, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a clinician. So in terms of the, the diagnosis and the, and the treatment plan, I can't really give specific answers, but but yeah, I mean, I would try to rule out SIBO. I would try to look at, at leaky gut, which I know there are certain tests that they can do. But you know, one one of the one of the issues is sometimes the the standard American diet leads to a very thin what's called the mucosa, which is this layer of mucus that separates the inner lining of the large intestine, the um, the lumen, the contents of the lumen from circulation. And the thinner that gets, the more permeable the the colonic um, epithelial cells that which are normally held together by what are called tight junctions, they can become sort of loose and open. At the very least, I would eliminate gluten, which has been shown in people to stimulate the release of a protein called zonulin, which does sort of lead to this. It, it opens up those tight junctions. Hmm. So I would, uh, you know, attempt to cut that out. But again, I'm not a, I'm not a medical doctor and, um, you know, everybody's going to be different. So, but that, that is sort of my thinking. I think that those like food sensitivity tests, I'm, I'm just not really too confident in the science underpinning the recommendations that are often made. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know exactly what your, what your provider told you to do, but I would say that, yeah, maybe, maybe an elimination diet is the plan for now. Yeah. But yeah, that was kind of what, kind of what he was saying was very similar. was like the, the, the root cause is basically leaky gut. You're, yeah. you're going to see a lot of the things that you, that are common in your diet on the food sensitivity test just because there's you have a leaky gut floor and stuff like that. And yeah. and the crazy thing to me too, if you can talk into that, is how much the gut affects so many other 
operating systems in your body, which is a crazy finding that has been something that's pretty recent in uh, nutritional documentation. Is that right? Like even like your the way that you you're uh, able to think or your mental clarity, like there's so many things that are affected by the bacteria in your gut. Yeah. I mean, I think it was Hippocrates, right? The father of Western medicine that said all disease begins in the gut. And, and we're just really at the tip of the iceberg in terms of the under, of, in terms of understanding the full breadth of the interaction that our gut has with the rest of our, with the other systems in the body. But your immune system is housed for the most part in and around the gut because your gut is your largest interface with the environment. I mean, you would think that it's your skin, right? But actually the, the contents of your gut are not necessarily inside of you. They're not in circulation, right? You eat food. And then the food that you eat is still sort of in the external environment as it passes through your gut. And then we extract what we want from our food and we, we ideally leave in, uh, what we don't want to, um, to extract from the food. So that, that sort of interface, uh, with the environment is there could be pathogens in there, which there are, we know that the, the colonic, the, the colonic microbiome has viruses. It has, it has, um, bacteria, it has fungus. And so there's this this entire ecosystem down there that needs to be essentially kept in check by our immune system. And so normally in, a, in, in somebody without gut dysbiosis, that system works effortlessly. It's like a jungle, you know, it's like an ecosystem and everything sort of happens peacefully. But when there's a disruption, when that mucosa isn't thick and robust, when um, we take, for example, antibiotics chronically, um, when we're overly sterile in our, in our lives, that system can sort of become out of balance. And uh, it can lead to systemic problems because, you know, it, it can lead to things in the gut, not necessarily staying in the gut. It can lead to inflammation in the gut, which, you know, doesn't, which can inform the brain. The brain can then have a response. So it's very, it's very complicated. But yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is important. And it's something that I'm super excited to see continue to evolve in terms of our, in terms of our understanding in the, in the years and decades to come. All right. Opinion on detoxes. <laughs> is it a total waste? Is it like the end all be all, you know, I know that you'll probably end up somewhere in between here, but yeah, uh, but yeah, I get some people that'll be like, you should definitely be doing detoxes once a quarter or whatever. And then, and then uh, you talk to some people that are like, oh yeah, that's just a, that's just a, what did the doctor say to us one time? The, we, we were she's like, oh, yeah, I want to for no reason. Yeah, that's all detoxes like, are for. She's like, ah, oh, it's crazy. She's a doctor time. too. Uh, it's just like, have a bunch of diarrhea for no reason. Shouldn't be on it. And surprise, she was somebody that I would not want to model my health after if, if mm. you catch my drift. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it detox to detox. Like I would say mostly probably it's a lot of marketing um, in that world yeah. uh, that you want to steer clear from. I think a lot of people end up on this, what's called like yo-yo cleansing, right? Mm -hmm. They're, they're continually toxing. And so they continually feel the need to detox, but, um, yeah, you have a dozen donuts. So then you want to go on a fast for three days and not yeah, I mean, you feel your food, the food that you're eating makes you feel shitty. And then you feel like punishing yourself, right. By going on this cleanse. It's just a really that, I mean, that to me is not a, a healthy relationship with food mm. Yeah, and it's not just food. It's alcohol. It's being underslept. I mean, being underslept doesn't make you feel really good. Right. But we tend to, when things in our lives, um, wind out of control, we tend to then control the things that we can control and sometimes too much so. And mm -hmm. food is one of those things where I think a lot of people can exert, can at least attempt to exert too much control. But that being said, there are foods and, and lifestyle practices that do encourage uh, quote unquote detoxification and eating cruciferous vegetables is an example of um, 
cruciferous vegetables are, are an example of a detoxifying food in the sense that they provide molecules that have been shown to increase our body's own production of detoxifying compounds like glutathione, which is the sort of mother of all antioxidants and, and endogenous detoxifiers that we create in our own bodies. Sitting in a sauna, sweating regularly is a great way to detox. We, de we, de we detoxify when we pee, when we poop. You know, so making sure that those systems are all working properly, making sure that we're eating enough dietary fiber, making sure that we're going to the bathroom regularly. Those are all, I think, crucial. Is there uh, a difference in your mind between the health of sitting in a steam room versus a sauna? I've always been curious about that. Because I've heard I, like steam, like if you inhale it, it's not good for your like the lining in your lungs or something. But I, I've, not, I've not really done any research in it. But I love sitting in the steam room um, after a good workout. So I'm hoping that it's uh, at least to some extent the same amount of health as sitting in a sauna. <laughs> no, it's definitely good for you. It's definitely good for you. I think that the perceived level of heat um, in a steam room is, is, is higher than the actual level of heat. And heat is really the, the key to deriving many of the benefits from from those kinds of environments. Gotcha. So you're saying it might feel like it's hotter, but it's probably not as necessary as you think it might be? It's probably not as as hot as it feels like it is. It's like the perceived temperature is probably higher than the actual temperature. Just yeah. because it's it's so steamy, it's hard to breathe in those environments. But I like steam rooms. I think steam rooms are great. Saunas are great. Infrared saunas are great. Just wearing a sweater for a little bit while you're working out to bring up your core body temperature. These are all great sort of modalities to um, derive benefit from heat stress. And heat stress is a sort of hormetic stressor that's been associated with a number of positive outcomes. I mean, the, the bulk of the evidence really supports actual the, the utilization of actual saunas. And this is because a lot of this research is coming out of Finland, which is the sauna capital of the world. Mm. And you see that regular sauna users in Finland, people who use saunas three to five times a week have a fairly robust risk reduction for dementia, for coronary artery disease, stroke, hypertension, things like that. But whichever way you're able to get your body hot and, 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 and work up your core temperature, I think, you know, just do that provided it's, it's safe for you to do so. So what about the opposite? What about cold? I mean, I love cold plunges. It's, it's, it's challenging. You know, there's definitely an acclimation that occurs, but, um, good for encouraging the proliferation of, of what's called brown fat, which is a, a type of fat cell that's metabolically active. It burns sugar and fat. Um, it's sort of, it, it's there to function as a sort of internal heating pad to heat up your vital organs. And so when you, when you're cold, even a mild cold has been shown to encourage the proliferation of brown fat and brown fat isn't like what we carry on our waistlines. It's not what we carry around our hips. It's, it's only, um, been identified in a very, um, small group of locations on the body around the collarbone in our armpits. And, um, it's, I, th I think at this point we know that the more brown fat you carry, the, the better your health seems to be. I mean, I think it's, it's been, it's been, um, pretty, it's, it's pretty accepted at this point that brown fat is, is, is quite metabolically healthy to have. Mm. Well, dude, I, I know we've covered like basically anything that we could yeah. possibly talk about here, but, uh, we're all over the place, but I think we covered a lot of really great things. Uh, like I said, uh, not, not just saying this cause we're interview interviewing you. Uh, you're one of the only health people that I continue to follow. Cause I just appreciate the content you put out. It's not skewed in one direction. It's, uh, it's, and even if you don't like something, you still give it credit and like, you're not for trying to discredit those things. And so of all the things that I send to her, probably uh, most of them nutritionally are, are your, you use your stuff. So, <laughs> oh, man. um, but 
probably because it gives me excuses to do the things I actually really want to do, but I heard <laughs> we're bad from some, like, you know, some people will be like, hey, don't eat red meat. Like, red meat's bad for you. And then, like, I'll see a, a pop up of just like, uh, of like, you know, because because in my mind, I was always like, oh, yeah, but it's really good protein, you know, but it's it's not quite as lean as maybe this other protein might be. But I see this post from you where it's like, you know, red meat not only has protein, but it has like these 48 other nutrients. And here's oh, a bunch great. more reasons why you should eat it. And I was like, yes, thank you. <laughs> Steak for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Well, dude, you've got my support. I'm a huge fan of red meat. I'm also a huge fan of fish and vegetables and things like that. So yeah, yeah, it's about getting shaking off the dogma and getting back to common sense. Yeah. When it comes to food. Love it, dude. Um, do you got anything else? No, that's it on me. Um, well, you if, awesome. if, if you're listening, listen right now, geniuskitchenbook.com. Uh, head over there and then you can follow Max at Max Lugavere over on any of the socials that you follow. Uh, like I said, Instagram, I get a lot of stuff on, from him on Instagram. He posts some really great, just like practical stuff as well mm-hmm. that breaks down nutrition in certain foods and things like that. So I'd highly recommend giving him a follow over there if you have any interest in keeping health top of mind, which you should uh, if, you, if you haven't already. So bro, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can't wait to uh, one day do this in person. Yeah, likewise. Thank you guys so much. Great meeting you. <laughs> likewise. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapelcom slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.